Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm the Managing Director of B Squared and the host of the Sendcast, the special needs podcast. Each week we'll be talking about a different topic within the world of special educational needs to improve knowledge, to provide support to professionals working in schools and to empower parents. In this episode, our guest is Lorraine Peterson, OBE, who has over 25 years experience as a teacher and head teacher. She has also been the CEO of Nason, and Lorraine received an OBE for her services to education. She now works as a consultant as well as many other roles. Lorraine will be talking about supporting SEN in mainstream settings. Before we get started, have you heard of the Virtual SEN Conference? This is a conference we started running in 2019 that makes CPD around SEND more affordable and easier to access. We run the conference twice a year over the internet, but you can watch the videos whenever you need to as they are always available. For more information, visit www.virtualsendconference.com and at the end of the episode, I'll be giving you a discount code so you can save some money when you purchase access. Now on with the podcast. Welcome to the show, Lorraine. Thank you, and good afternoon. So, 80% of pupils with SEND requiring support are in mainstream classrooms and are in receipt of additional and or different provision to their peers. In your experience, are pupils getting the support they need? I would say uh, in some schools, yes. And they're getting lots, and in others, no. And I think what we need to be very clear about before we start you know, going into more detail is what is SEND? So what is it that, that, what is the description, the criteria, whatever you want to call it, that gives that youngster that identification of being SEND? For that, we need to go back to the Code of Practice 2015. And the criteria is very simple um, in terms of special needs and disability. For special needs, it is any child or young person that is in receipt of additional and or different provision. So therefore, they are getting something over and above what their peers might be getting. We add disability to that. And the the, the criteria um, or the classification of disability can be found in the Equality Act. And that is a person has a disability if they have a physical or mental impairment and the impairment has substantial and long-term adverse effect on their ability to carry out normal day-to-day activities. So the majority of our children and young people with SEN are disabled. So we can take, whether we take the Code of Practice or we take the Equality Act, it's about having a physical or mental impairment that is substantial and long-term for which they are getting additional and or different provision. Now, I think across the country, we have schools that will have an SEN register, which will list all of their children, young people who they believe have got a special educational disability. But actually, when you then ask them what is the additional and or different provision they get in, they haven't got any. They are being monitored. So the SENCO has put them on the SEN register because they know that They might have a bit of a problem, but actually we can't afford to give them additional provision or we haven't got anybody to support that provision. So it is a bit of a minefield in terms of the actual definition. Is there guidance on when children should be put on that register? Because one of the things I come across on social media is when people discuss this, the uh, guidance that some schools use is if a child is more than two years behind, that's it. Nothing about those 
with a special need working at age-related? No. So, no, there isn't criteria. The, the, there, as you say, there's lots of criteria made up by schools, local authorities, whatever. It is basically a child or a young person who a school feels is not working or knows is not working at the level of their peers and who, with some additional support, will not catch up. So I still refer to the three waves of intervention, which came out many, many years ago when we had national strategies, but I actually think it still fits the bill nicely. So all pupils get wave one, which is high quality, differentiated teaching all the time, every lesson, every day. So every pupil should be getting that. Then wave two is the additional provision we might give to somebody who is underachieving and with a bit of a kick and a bit of a push and a bit of a boost will catch up with their peers or will only just be below their peers. Wave three is SEN. It's those youngsters that will never catch up, doesn't matter what you do. They need additional and or different provision to their peers. And they are the ones that would be SEN register as far as I'm concerned. So they are the ones that would be SEN support, who would be identified as SEN and who Asenko would tell teachers, these are your pupils that are on the SEN register. But I think that we've still got some schools that have got a register that's got what used to be School Action and School Action Plus. So School Action are the monitoring, School Action Plus being SEN support. And there are still some schools out there, and and this is a real myth, who think they get money into their budget for how many pupils they've got on their SEN register, which I think is, is about 10 years ago now when that was actually the case. So, you know, the number of people on your register and, and money has got, there's no correlation at all there. So, you know, don't think you need to have lots on your register because you get more money because you don't. So it's about making sure, and, and this is a Senko role, but actually it's working with all the teachers, making sure that you are absolutely certain that the pupils that you have got on your SEN register are SEN support and are getting additional and or different provision. Yeah. Because if they're not, they shouldn't be on your register. So rather than just having a list of names, you should have a second column with what we're doing. Well, absolutely. I mean, I I know Senkos get a bit panicky about losing these monitoring. So for me, you could have an additional needs register of which SEN is just one column, but you could have another column that's monitoring. You could have free school meals. You could have looked after children. You could have children who are disabled but haven't got SEN. Because <laughs> yep. you could have, you know, because SEN in, in its own right is about learning. Disability is is about learning and physical. So, yes, I would have a, a register, but it's not about the list of names. It's actually about, so what are we going to do about that person's needs? So it's about knowing what their, ne- their specific needs are, knowing what we're going to put in place to support them, and then knowing whether that's working or not. Yeah. So what's the impact? What's the progress? Which is very similar to an EHC um, education, health and care plan. It's these are the needs, this is the provision, these are the outcomes. And I think SEN support should be tracked in in the same way. So these are the needs of this particular pupil. This is the provision we're going to put in additional and or different. And these are the outcomes. And if nothing is happening in the outcomes column, then we need to go back to the provision and say, why isn't it working? This isn't the old APDR cycle again, is it? Possibly, (laughs) possibly. But again, I think that we've still got, Schools that are still a bit mixed up in terms of 
you know, the old system and, and the new system, which we're now six years into, so we shouldn't be. I do, I do find in a lot of schools that the SND Code of Practice and Holy HCP sits in a box on a shelf up there. And then the main thing we focus on is the curriculum and outcomes for everyone else. And to be fair, under the new Ofsted framework, I understand why that is because curriculum is so important. How well a school supports children with SEN has got to start with school leadership. Yeah. You know, yes, the Senko is in charge. Yes, they are the, the strategic manager. But if SEN is not placed, you know, in, in an important position in the school, then it that causes all sorts of difficulties for the Senko, which in turn causes all sorts of difficulties for staff. Because if the the drive of the school is around academia, it's around, you know, delivery of curriculum, it's around getting young people through the hoops if you like, whether that's primary or secondary, then often SEN does go unmet. And the Senko's sort of trying to get teachers to do things. Teachers have got pressure from leadership because they've got to get through the, the curriculum or they've got to get so many children to make you know four points of progress or whatever the system is. And so, you know, SEN pupils can sometimes get left behind. I think the other issue is that there is a, a bit of a belief that additional and or different means let's put a TA with them. So the additional and or different is an additional adult. And again, we've seen in, in schools where that has changed and, and you know, they've, they've de deployed teaching support staff in a different way. We've seen a real impact because it means the teacher is taking responsibility for all their pupils and they're not just being left for, you know, a TA or a support assistant. Again, there are some schools that will still see that you know, SEN, somebody else. Yeah. Um. That these youngsters spend a lot of time outside the classroom, and I think when we think about Ofsted, Ofsted are saying that all pupils must get a broad and balanced curriculum. So I think schools need to first of all think about what are they taking those pupils out of, because you know, if it's the same subject every single week, two or three times a week, that's not a broad and balanced curriculum. Because for that child, they they're not getting their modern foreign language or they're not getting their history or so this is a question again i've seen come up a lot on uh, social media and it is that when you've got a child working significantly below how important is foreign languages to them and i think schools need to balance up what are you doing is that time yeah if you're using that foreign language lesson you're taking them out of there to make up for badly differentiated supported english lessons that's not a good use of time. The best use of time will be to put better practice in the English. If we're using that to look at maybe other areas with that child looking at um, helping with anxiety, that's probably yeah. a better thing. But it's what are you doing? Is there a better way of doing it? Yeah. Are you, rather than fixing a solution, patching it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the bottom line is, and this is the bit that I don't think we're as good at as we ought to be, is actually identifying what is that young person's primary need. So you may have a child who has had a diagnosis of autism. Well, autism is as long as a piece of string in terms of, you know, their, their needs. But actually, at this moment in time, their underlying need might be a mental health issue. Yep. You could have a child who's really struggling with their reading, right? So, you know, you throw tons of reading intervention, but actually, if they're struggling with their mental health, they're never going to read because no. we've got to address their mental health first. So. It's really, and I use the analogy of an onion. You have, you've got to peel back every layer of the onion to get to the heart 
of what is the is the need of that child because you could spend a lot of time, effort, and money. And there's some, you know, there are some brilliant interventions out there. But if that child's not in the right place to learn, it's not going to make any difference. I do, I do see lots of people going, I'm after a writing intervention. Mm. Are you? Yeah. What well, level? What reason? Yeah. What angle? It's, 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 they're not writing, but what's the reason? that You can't just say, let's do more writing. You've got to find out what the problem Absolutely. is. Absolutely. And, and uh, I'll take the writing example. You, know, you might have a, it's often boys, because I'll explain that in a minute, but you know, you've got a boy whose handwriting is absolutely appalling. You, know, you can't read it. It's really difficult. Bright lads, you know, got lots of verbal answers, etc. Just throwing a hand at more writing at him is just going to give him stress and grief because he, he finds it really difficult. What's probably happened is way back, he didn't get enough gross motor skills development, which then supports his fine motor skills development. So we, we need to do more gross motor skills to develop the fine motor skills rather than keep putting that barrier of writing in his way and and not seeing any results because you're not going to see any results because the anxiety of being told you've got to write (laughs) is actually stopping him writing. And it might be the same for reading. You know, there's a child who's really struggling with decoding words. The more you keep throwing phonics at them, then if they can't decode the words, they're not going to get get to read so uh, on another podcast with wendy lee we talked about phonics but also talks about phonological yes actually phonological is the saying and the sounds and the patterns and the rhythm and if you struggle with that then you're going to struggle with phonics absolutely and it's all this stuff that um my mum will always say back in my day when i went to teaching school and spent three years learning all about how to be a teacher we learned all about child development absolutely and she could develop a curriculum she could look at a child identify and that's all been cut out. So yeah. as the tw- as national curriculum came along, it's like we'll tell you what to do. Just do what we yeah. say, and we'll cut out all the. D- and then we simplified the teacher training. Yeah. And now the government's going, well, we don't actually have the money to do all that for you. You're on your own. Yeah. But we're not going to help you. No. And and I I still don't know because I'm I'm like your mum, <laughs> in my forty second year of education now. You know, I still refer back to my child development yeah. training. If I'm working with children, because you you know that this this would be an average four year old, so you know if somebody's not working at that, there's some there's something missing. There's something we need to do to develop it, and, and we don't have any of that. No. And what what we're now looking at is you are I don't know. Let's, well, let's take the multiplication test. You are end of year four, so what's that about eight, nine, ten, something like that. So you must be able to do all of your times tables. Up to 12s, right? If you can't, then we'll just give you more tables and you'll do more practicing. Nobody's actually looking at, is there a barrier to numbers or, you know, is there some dyscalculia there or is there some memory issues or is there processing? Because it's it's about multiplication tests and being able to do your tables. So we just give you more of them. I used to really struggle in maths. I remember being uh, kept in in year two. Because I couldn't do, yeah, the multiplication chart, you get your stars, and I was towards the bottom, and I was rubbish, and I was not good, and I kept being kept in. And then at some point, something clicked. I think it was probably year, I'm saying year two, that would be year four, actually, in reality. But year five, something clicked. Something in my head went, I've got this, and I knew all my times tables, and I was off. I have no idea what that was. Yeah. But you were ready to learn at that point in time. You might not have been in year four. I got, I, once I had got past yeah. that, I was then doing. But yeah. 
it's fine. finding that block. Yeah, absolutely. And and if all you just keep doing is throwing more of the same at that young person, all you do is build stress and anxiety, which then puts a bigger block in, in the you know. And then you might have behaviour issues. Absolutely. And, it all just and, then, and then every the teacher sees the behaviour, they don't see well what was the trigger for that. Yeah. You know, if every time that you give them more more of the the same that they can't do, and and they, there's they, there's some challenge. You've got to stop giving them what it is that causes the challenge. Yes. But uh, you know, again, it's 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 knowing what is it, what is that trigger, and what is that barrier, and then being able to try and remove the barrier or at least reduce it, so that that youngster can yeah move on. And in some ways, yeah, that makes sense. Or maybe record on the SEM register or somewhere. Well, absolutely, and and yeah, once you know where the where the barriers are and where the triggers are, that can then be used. To pass on to staff. So lots of people use IEPs or IPPs or IS, but whatever they're called. Anything uh, starting with an I. Anything with an I, individual and then whatever. They're non-statutory. You don't have to use them. I, I, I'm hoping that there's no local authority left in this country that insists on having them because they can't. For me, what schools should be developing are pupil passports or one profiles, one-page profiles, where you could put you know, multiplication is a real barrier for this young person. They need support whenever there's, you know, or whatever it might be. That then the teacher can say and know that when they're going to start multiplication or do anything that's got multiplication in it, we need to give them some initial support. We might need to give them some tactile things to, you know, cubes or whatever to use. We might need to put another body with them for that particular. We might need to pre-teach. Yeah. So like you were saying earlier, yes, they're going to go out for yeah, three afternoons a week during this week to prepare them ready for the topic of multiplication next week. Yeah. Uh, so that they've got the pre-teaching and they're ready to start when the, that topic comes up. But it's about knowing what the individual needs are and where the barriers are for those children. And for some, there'll be lots of barriers and others, it might just be one or two things. Because those one-page profiles, really, because in theory, you have got a list of do's and don'ts. This what works, this doesn't work, Absolutely. this causes issues, this will cause behaviour issues. Yeah. But also you can have a list of those reasonable adjustments. Absolutely. So, you know, you can you can uh, you know, talk to the child about what helps them. You know, I, I mean, I, I think pupil profiles or passports, whatever you want to call them, are the, the best thing to get pupil voice. Because yeah. you, if, I mean, a teacher or a teaching assistant, it doesn't matter who, you spend half an hour with that young person Asking them, you know, what do they think they're good at? What do you think not so good at? What helps you? You know, what do you like outside school? You're getting a picture and you're giving that young person a voice yeah. to actually tell you. Now, you know, not all pupils will open up to you, but most will. And then, and then you can amend those. They don't then go in a folder. They become a working document almost. And I've seen some really good ones that actually, you know, have ended up with the pupil permission, I have to say, because of GDPR, but I've ended up like on the back of a cupboard door or um, in the staff room, and staff have annotated them. So when something has happened that maybe wasn't recorded on the pupil passport, they've said to the pupil, do you think we need to add this and, and let other staff know that this is what would help you if this happens again? Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a working document. And, again, it's, it's just telling you what that, youngster might need that just makes their life a little bit easier and I think you know sometimes staff might think oh they're not telling me what to do but actually 
they're telling you what will make everybody's life easier. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's the bit for me. Why wouldn't you listen to what the pupil's telling you? Because it's going to make everybody's life easier. And that, and that youngster then will get a better quality of education and, and hopefully may still not be able to keep up with their peers, but at least will be making progress at, at the level they're working at. Definitely. So my, my nephew uh, has anxiety. So if he's not sure what's going on in the classroom, he'll never ask. Mm. So he'll sit there in silence. Yeah. A reasonable adjustment is just making sure you walk up to him or go down to his level and say, do you know what you're doing? Are yeah. you happy? Yeah. My other nephew has dysgraphia. And so every every week when he had to write down his spellings, mm. that was hard work. He spelt them wrong. He then learned them wrong. Yeah. Reasonable adjustment is just having them written down ready for him Absolutely. and just hand them. It's not huge amounts no. of work. It's just a small adjustment, yeah. which makes a giant difference for that child. But also technology now means that you don't need to have anything written. Technology. Yeah, technology. No, we like, don't, we should ban phones. I hate that. I hate, to yeah, me, a phone so, is the best thing in the world. Yeah. And, you know, I, I get very cross when, again, going back to the handwriting thing, you know, you get a youngster who's going into year two, year three, handwriting still like, as my husband would say, you know, the spiders crawled out of the inkwell. Um, <laughs> You've got to know what inkwells are, you know, be yes. of an age. But anyway, if you teach that youngster touch typing skills, they will be able to access everything without having to worry ever about their handwriting. And when they go into the workplace, there won't be paper and pencil. They will be using technology. It's, I think a lot of, I think paper is so important in school. So every time I go into a meeting, you have all these teachers with big pads of paper. Uh, yeah, well, teachers like paper. You do, you do. I'm touching my pile of paper <laughs> as we sit here. And I'm touching my iPad. Yeah. Um, and it is, it is, I think people realising that actually in business it is all about yeah. tech. It is the world, everything is tech. And yeah. I don't think primaries fully prepare children for secondary, but that's a whole other thing. No, I, nor do I, but yeah, um, we'll but talk I about think, that on another podcast. <laughs> but I think the tech and my nephew, when we, we identified him having dysgraphia, it was he needs an iPad. Yeah. He needs, just get him to type on an iPad. In reality, by having the issue around holding a pencil and actually spelling and writing, he's putting so much thought into that. His creativeness is disappearing. Yeah. He hasn't got time to think about yeah. that. It's years. It took his years. And when he got to secondary school, he was allowed to have a laptop. He had to go sign it out and put it back. And then you get one, sit down, flat. Finally, I think in year 10, they just said, fine, just use a laptop. And in year 10, he got the award in his school for the most progress of everyone. Not special needs, in fact, the whole yeah. school he got the award because they finally really removed that barrier, barrier. and yeah. let him achieve what he could achieve. Yeah. But, but there's nothing that stops us doing that in year one or year two. No, apart because, from everyone has to be the same. Yeah, everyone but they don't. To, they, because as you keep keep saying, reasonable adjustments, adaptations, whatever you want to call them, differentiation. Can we say your favourite phrase or one of your favourite <laughs> phrases? Which is? The 20th century. Oh, um, yeah, we've got, we've got 20th century workforce working in a 20th century education system with 21st century children and young people. And that's, that's the barrier. Yes. And, and that's, I'm not, that's not blaming anybody. That's the system that we're currently working. And as you say, we're still hooked up onto paper. And, you know, as we're recording this, we've got the coronavirus things going on. And there's all, you know, lots and lots of discussions about, you know, taking exams electronically and what are we going to do? Because even down to the testing system in this country, it still relies on paper and pencil. And, you know, actually, we should have moved on by now. We, we have the technology and it's not expensive. No, and I do Microsoft professional qualifications and all of them are done online. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's not hard. You just have a room, yeah. webcams, various other stuff, yeah. and you can do it. So the tech is there. Yeah. And people often say, oh, well, they, they have to fill in an application form for a job. Well, most application forms now are done online. You know, is it? <laughs> It's, there isn't much now that you don't do, you can't do online. Generally, I sign my name and I doodle when I'm on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> but actually, I mean, I still use paper because I'm of that generation, but my handwriting is appalling now. And yet as a teacher, I, you know, I used to have to do it really neatly because when I'm doing any pieces of writing, I type. Yes. So I still have to have bits of paper with me, but everything's typed. It's not handwritten. So I do a bit of both, really, I suppose. And what's interesting is talking to Aaron Smith and also doing various bits of reading and research into writing is a lot of people, so a lot of the information you may read on the uh, Evening Standard website, on the BBC website, on the Telegraph, hopefully some of the not trashy ones, a lot of those may have been dictated. So on your phone, you have that microphone button, and you can just talk yeah. to your phone. Yeah. And actually, a lot of people who write now yeah. are actually speaking. Mm. So the whole concept of writing yeah. and what that means yeah. needs to be rethought. Yeah. So if all these writers are just dictating, why are we still? Yeah. It's, it's, it's the message. Yeah. It's what you're conveying is important, yeah. not But you going back to your spellings, you know, you can now get little recording devices like talking tins or talking cubes where the teacher could literally read out those 10 spellings yep. and and then a pair, the parent could, you know, write them out one at a time for the youngster or the child writes them out how they think they should. You know, there's lots of things that we can do that doesn't mean that child has got to sit for that last 15 minutes in the afternoon when they're tired anyway, and and copy words that they don't even know what they mean and get them, as you say, copy them wrong, and then they learn them wrong. Yes. And then they get null out of 10 at the test. <laughs> number of years ago when we were doing, um, so at B Squared we do assessment content. If you haven't heard of B Squared, it's all we do. We do assessment and breaking things down into smaller steps. And uh, we were looking at the ICT uh, assessment, and my mum, old school, was very much about um, pupils hearing their voice. It's important for you to hear yeah. your own voice. And she had those, what were those old machines? Um, oh, I know what you mean, where you put... Uh, uh, the magnetic strip yeah. thing. You had these big machines, you have a magnetic strip, and it would say words, and you could put your headphones on, and you can record. And yeah. my mum would talk about the benefits of yeah. this and all this lot, and she talked about tape recorders. And she was adamant we had to have tape recorders yeah. in. And I was like, Mum, it's 2014. Yeah. Go find a tape recorder. See if you can go find a tape recorder. Four hours later, she'd found one for £300 on one of the educational suppliers. And then I got the and I, my iPad out and I said, look, look at all the stuff I can do on the iPad. I can do exactly the same. Yeah. It's, I've got this device already. I don't have to buy anything. I can email it. I can share it. I can do so much more with it. I haven't just got one copy. And it isn't, I think tech can completely revolutionise things. So think about eye gates. Absolutely. For some of our very vulnerable youngsters who may not have been with us 10 years ago, they wouldn't have survived. But we're, we're now able to give them an education that we would never have given them years ago. And eye, eye gaze is completely revolutionary. You get the whole, um, maybe they won't be able to share what they meant and you kind of, it's a bit of a locked in sort of yeah. revolutionary. Other stuff is, it is just evolution of something we've done yeah. before. Yeah. It's merging multiple devices into one and then just thinking, and it is being, don't be scared of it. Yeah. A, Adapt it because it will make your life easier. Yeah. I mean, you know, people, and I'm, I, I criticise, I suppose, the amount of time that very young children spend on iPads or on phones because nobody's talking to them and they're not developing their language. But because they do do that, they're coming into school very, very tech savvy. Yes. And yet we're almost 
taking that away from them and making them sit with a pencil and paper, which they haven't had at home. So going back to your mum and child development, the other thing is that, you know, back in that the, the day, and I'm not saying it was a better day, but children came to school and they'd, they could already write their name because that was something parents did with them. You know, they had a good vocabulary because parents talked to them. They knew all their nursery rhymes because parents sang to them. You know, they'd had a bedtime story every night, but we've moved on. Yeah. And, and you know, parents will now you know, put a film on the iPad or, yeah, and I'm not saying that's right, don't, don't get me it's wrong, different. but it's a, it's different. It's 21st century. You know, yes, our children still need nursery rhymes. They still need stories. And as, when they come into school, we have to accept that they haven't had those. So we've got to find a way of doing that. And and using technology might be the way to do it. did a podcast with Sarah Jane and we look at anxiety. She talked about... and. For children with autism, they like computers because it's rule-based. Yeah. So if they sit on a computer game, it's very predictable and actually it's quite calming for them because mm. it's very predictable and they understand it, they know what's coming, whereas everything else can change. And often they've got headphones on, which actually then cuts out any background noise, which can also be irritating to Sometimes them. Sometimes it's when you come home from school, is having that time on the computer or on tech is quite a good yeah. Calming. Uh, deregulating. Deregulating. Yeah. It's really good. But other times it's not good. I know my daughter for a while, every so often spoke with an American accent because yeah. of the uh, American Yeah. I mean, and I think films she watched. You know, again, there's a there's a balance. There's a balance in how much tech we use in school, there's a balance in how much tech parents should be using at home. And you know, um, but I do think that for our SEN pupils, we shouldn't discount tech because yes. I think that it can be a real good uh, adaptation for those youngsters that the barrier is writing or reading or, you know, whatever, spelling, because, again, you can do find so many programmes and things, you know, for that. The programme, is it Child of Our Time? Looking yes. at the uh, yeah. developmental. Yeah. They did yeah. one, I think it was last year, where we looked at the impact of mobile devices yeah. and social media. And they had all these predictions for these children. And I think most of them didn't happen. No. Because they are using those predictions based on people brought up a different way yeah. who started doing that, yeah. whereas people were brought up with this text. There was a boy who I think was up till 1 o'clock in the morning playing online gaming, and they're going, he's going to have a rubbish sleep, his brain's really active. And he literally turned the computer off and was asleep in yeah. seconds, had a really deep, high-quality sleep, and then woke up at half seven and was off. And they're like, and it just didn't match no. the patterns we, what would happen if we did that because yeah. we're older, yeah, we're yeah, not yeah, used to that. Yeah. And we don't know enough yet about it because it no. is still too, yeah, it is modern. <laughs> I know that sounds silly, but we don't have lots of research and evidence about it and, and the impact it might have longer term and, you know, all the rest of it. But what I see as a governor in a special school is how tech, Technology has opened up the world for those children. And I think in, in special schools have, have got that now. They use assistive technology. You know, they, they have to find alternative ways of communication. Mainstream schools haven't yet because I don't think they know, actually. They don't know what they don't know. So they don't know what's out there. Yeah. So I think, you know, again, and I've, I've, I've said this a lot, but, you know, if you've got a, a youngster who's really struggling Go and have a look at your local special school and, and find out what tech they're using because it isn't, it isn't always about it's too expensive, we can't afford it. No. Because actually nowadays a lot of tech isn't expensive no. compared to, you know, having to go and buy lots of resources or books or whatever. It's a one-off payment and, and you've got it and 
You can use, as you say, you know, you can use it's sort of Windows now to do all sorts of, in words, you know, it'll do yeah. all sorts of things for you. Speak to you. Yeah, absolutely. You Aaron's, don't have to go Aaron's out and buy special packages. You can actually use um, Word for Windows and, and it's, it's all embedded in, you know, in the, in the programme. So you and me both use Facebook. Yeah. And I'm going to use that as an example is you might be have a friend on Facebook, you might be in a group. Yeah, you might have a shared interest with yeah. someone. You might be a uh, teapot collector. Maybe. <laughs> you know nothing about anyone else in that group apart from what they have chosen to share with you, which yeah. is what they say. Yeah. Uh, and what I love about that is it gets rid of so many prejudices. You know how old that person is, yeah. colour of their skin, their gender. Yeah. You have no idea their uh, cognitive ability and if they've got special needs. And it's, it's, when, it's, when you start looking at just text, mm. it's a real leveller. Yeah. So you can literally, you can be communicating with someone and you have no idea if they're typing that message by blowing, yeah. if they're using eye gaze yeah. or yeah. if they're a really, really fast Absolutely. touch typer. Yeah. It's all level, Yeah. which to me is great. And yeah. that then tells you how important that is for people with disabilities, with special yeah. needs, because actually that's a world where they can be seen as an equal. Yeah. There's just so many things around that. And mm. if you can, it opens doors for them. So it's going to help them socially. It's mm. going to reduce their anxiety because they can have friends, they can have relationships. Yeah. It's not in the real world, but it doesn't mean it's not a real relationship. No. And that's really powerful. And by giving them those skills, you're really improving their life. Yeah, absolutely. Again, if, you know, take an example of a, a, a child on the SEN registry in a secondary school. Yeah, often one of their barriers is reading, which you know, obviously means that in primary school they didn't get what they should have got in order to read. But by the time they get to secondary school, yeah, if you're a history teacher, say, you know that child has got difficulties, you know that child's got, you know, maybe difficulties reading, and you look at their their IEP and it says reading age of 8-2. Okay, well, for most history teachers that will mean absolutely nothing. The fact that the history textbook that that school is using has got a reading age or reading ability of 10-2. That means that the teacher probably does all their worksheets similar to the textbook. Yeah. So straight away, that young person is at a disadvantage because they, you know, they can't read the book, they can't read the text. And that's not that teacher's fault because they don't understand no. what that 8-2 means, if you know what I mean. But, you know, through the use of tech, we can make font bigger, we can reduce number of words, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it's just thinking, you know, what what do we mean by differentiation or adaptation or uh, personalization or adjustment? You know, for some people, it is just about, well, we just have a different worksheet or you need to write less or do less sums. And yet there's so much more that we can be doing and offering for pupils on SEN support in mainstream classrooms. That's that's more it's about you know, adapting it to meet that youngster's needs. Problem is it all goes back to preparing for the test. Uh, well, absolutely. And, and you know, I am hopeful that under the new Ofsted framework, things will change because SEN is much more, is more important now under the new framework. Not that we have to do anything for Ofsted, but they're still there. So we do have to remember that. I, I'm not a huge, I'm not going to say I love Ofsted. No, nobody does. It's necess necessary. Well, I'm not going to say evil, without, it's necessary. Without any other accountability measure, then yes. Okay, would you rather have league tables or Ofsted? Ofsted. That's, that's to me, that's the thing. Yeah. Ofsted is one level of evil. They're yeah. the people who come into school. I think they're seen as evil. Yeah. 
but it's the league tables which are making which are local authorities using to judge schools yeah. and telling them off and when you have league tables that's when you look at your SEN and go <laughs> yeah. but also even worse than that now is that staff performance management is based on league tables or exam results uh, did you read the you probably have you read everything uh, <laughs> I might not have done uh, making data work it was done by a workload advisory group. Yes, I did, yes. And that was very high recommendations that uh, pupil performance should not be used to, to uh, performance management or pupil teacher pay. And the government agreed, mm. and there was supposed to be further stuff. Yeah. Haven't seen it yet. No. And, you know, I meet Senkos regularly, and they their performance management is based on the progress of SEM pupils who they may actually never, ever teach or ever see, apart from for the SEN bits. And yet their performance management is going to be based on those pupils' progress, which I find a real, I just, I, I don't, can't I'm, see it. I don't just, understand it. I'm just starting rocking here. Yeah, okay. Um, but, you know, that's the 20th century education system. Yeah. It, it is not fit for purpose for 21st century children and young people because we're still, I mean, you know, some people would say it's 19th century. You know, when you think about, you know, the, the, the culture, the exams, the sitting in rows to take your test, you know, it's, it's all very Dickensian and yes. <laughs> which is, but, you know, we, we don't seem to have moved on and, and realised that for some of our youngsters, that isn't the way to go. That causes a lot of stress and a lot of anxiety. Why have we got more children than ever out of education because of social, emotional, mental health needs? Because the system has failed them. Yeah. Not teachers, not, you know, not even the curriculum, really. It is the system. It's the pressures. Because they're square pegs in round, round holes and we're not adjusting the system. Because, as you said, at the end of the day, the league tables, how many children you get through SATs, progress eight measures at GCSE, dictate everything that goes on in a school. And also, does it still give a glass ceiling on your Ofsted score? Uh, no, because... Uh, because date, although data is part of what they look at, they are far more concerned now with the curriculum and you offering a broad and balanced curriculum for all pupils. So in, in primary school, we, we know that there is a narrowing of the curriculum in year six, maybe year five, towards maths and English all the time. Yeah. So, you know, on an inspection now, Ofsted would want to see all subjects being taught all the way through the year and evidence of that. In secondary schools, there has been lots of questions around should it be a three-year key stage three or a two-year because it, it always used to be seven, eight and nine was key stage three, 10 and 11 was key stage four. Quite a lot of secondaries then put, moved year nine into key stage four, so it was just a two-year key stage three. There are some secondary schools that they start the GCSE pathway, flight path, whatever you call it, in year seven. And, you know, again, pupils have moved from that very flexible primary curriculum to almost, you know, very rigid subject academic-based learning and with six-month gap in between. And that can cause a lot of stress and anxiety. And I have a, one of my big, big issues around SEN children in, in secondary schools is because it's the progress eight that is the accountability 
measure for secondary schools. Secondary schools will put all pupils in for eight subjects, even though they know they might fail eight subjects, as opposed to put them into four that they might pass because four doesn't give them the points that eight do. So you can have eight and, 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 and fail. From a school point of view, that's another pupil that's done eight GCSEs. And I think we've got a generation of youngsters. And that's, that's why, in my opinion, we've seen a lot more of this off-rolling. Yeah. So where pupils have been removed. And if you looked at the Ofsted annual report that came out in January, Amanda Spielman reckoned there were 5,500 pupils who had been removed from education between year 10 and year 11. Now, that's probably not that many when you think about how many people we're talking about, but that's 5,500 pupils that have not done any statutory exams. And where are they? And what are they up to? What's their future? And what's their future? So where's the preparation for adulthood? And that's the bit that I worry a lot about. A couple of weeks ago. So one of the issues we have a lot is we talk to schools about the progress and how to make the judgments. And it's more about what the teachers think. How well has the child progressed rather than how much? And they often come against the barrier of explaining this to higher management or to governors. We did a webinar a couple of weeks ago on helping governors and external agencies understand how to judge progress for pupils with SEN. Oh, right. Okay. And it was all about rather than how much they progress, how about you ask your teachers how they feel about that progress. Because, yeah. yes, most of your might be below in that lovely graph and be yeah. red in their systems. Or emerging. That's another one, emerging, yeah. like Working the chrysalis, emerging. <laughs> but actually, if the teachers are happy with that, and it comes down to the word I hardly ever hear anymore, which is potential. Mm. If those children are working really hard, they're working at their potential, why are you punishing them? Why are you saying that's not good enough? If they're doing everything they possibly can and the teacher's really happy, yeah. that's what you should be sharing. Yeah. And then as you do that, you actually work out where the teacher feels, yeah, they could do more there. That's where you need to put the support, yeah. not where they're but not making enough. But that has to start with a curriculum that meets the needs of those youngsters, that is progressive so that they don't miss really important bits of learning. So when we got the new national curriculum five years ago, it was there was so much in it to, to teach. There was a lot. Uh, and, you know, I think teachers just thought, I've got to do all this in year one in maths and I'll just da 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 And, you know, most kids got it eventually, but there would have been some that missed some crucial basic skill that nobody then went back over. So they moved into year two and they hadn't got that platform to work on. They're now in year four or year five and they're really struggling. So for me, it's about... And, and, you know, because of the changing offset, I think this is the right time to be doing it. Really looking at the curriculum and thinking, what is the non-negotiable aspects of the national curriculum that we will teach and we will teach and we will teach? <laughs> and if, if, if somebody hasn't got it, we'll over-teach it or, you know, all the rest of it. So that everybody's got those basic stepping stones to go through key stage two. So you won't then end up with, or less maybe, you know, those children are in year five and the teacher's saying they're only working at year one. Well, actually, if we'd given them the stepping stones and the, and the you know, the, the bricks to build on, yes, they might be below their peers and they may be significantly below their peers, but they've got those stepping stones to actually help them. Two messages I got from when the new curriculum came out, one of them, which disappeared, and I can't find any reference to it, but it's kind of what people still believe is, you assess the child and teach the child against the year group they're in. 
Yeah. So if a child is in year six, you assess them against year six, you teach them a year yeah. six. You don't teach them appropriately. You kind of just different. Yeah. And I think it's kind of differentiation. The scaffolding's disappearing because yeah. of that. So that's been one. But um, my daughter's school, which was really good, they went down the mastery approach, which right. is you make sure you have those foundations yeah. before you move them on. That's got to be concrete because right. you can't move them on. No. And they did talk about with the new curriculum, the idea is, again, but they're still doing it, they were, children were being rushed through these skills and they got to these higher skills because they didn't get the, the earlier That's skills. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think there are two messages, but luckily the um, the message about assessing only within the year disappeared. Yeah. But there are still lots of schools when they send a kid for an EHCP in year five and he's working at year five below. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the, the other thing that you know, actually is, is written into the Austin Inspection Framework now, which is the first time I've ever known anything like this, but they actually talk about you know, you've got to put that knowledge and skills into the child's working memory because if it only ever goes into, you know, the sort of frontal lobes of the brain, it never gets embedded. It's got to go into the working memory and then it's there forever. Yeah. But, you know, if it only goes into short-term memory, it's, it'll go, it'll disappear. Um, and if you go too fast or move topics on too quickly, children with, well, lots of children, but mainly children with special needs, that they never fill their working memory up. Their, their, their short-term memory just comes, goes, comes, goes, comes, goes. And they, they've got nothing to fall back on later on when they need to draw on that knowledge and skills that, you know, they they, they learnt a while back. I'm, you know me, I love maths, I love computing. Yeah. It's the area I love. Um, and I know both my daughters struggled a bit in a bit in maths, but only because they couldn't really relate it to anything. So they'd learnt something. And almost like learn this, why? Because just learn. If it was a bit like that. Whereas actually when we explained it to them and I did it in a more practical way, they picked it up so much quicker. Yeah. And I think sometimes it is that working memory lies in you being able to relate to it or use yeah. it rather than just learning the sums on the board and going, okay, I've learned that three cubed is 27. I don't know what three cubed 27 yeah. means. I actually went through that sort of stuff and my daughter picked it up much quicker. And it is, I think that's one thing with the maths is a bit missing. Yeah, but I, I think there's a bigger picture there, which is about, if you, again, look, if you look at the SEND code of practice, everything is about preparation for adulthood. And, you know, for me, if you have got, a, a, you're struggling with number or whatever, you need the practical application, which might be using money. And you need to, you know, you need to know that you need to know that that's a penny and that's a 2p and that's a 5p. Because if you go into the shops, you've got to know how much you're giving somebody and how much change. So, and yeah, if, you, if you're cooking, you've got to be able to weigh. And so it's about using those, if you like, academic concepts, for want of a better word, but in a practical way. Yeah. And again, you know, our special schools are doing that all the time. Because yeah. that's what they have to do because of the nature of their youngsters. But at mainstream schools, it's almost like we either don't know what we don't know, so we don't know how to do that, or we, we're working to the majority, not the minority. So we can't don't do that. I think it's something which you, I think you do a lot in early years. I go back to my childhood and yeah. the balancing things that's, and yeah. hacking. And you, you see it in a yeah, practical way. <laughs> Don't have time for play. No. Got, to get, got to get to the test. Got yeah. to get the results. Got to get our yeah. progress scores up. And and you know when you think about it, you know you've got a youngster who might be coming into reception at, at, at you know what should be rise, rising five, who may actually be working at around eighteen months, two years. 
So three years behind. So they do reception and, and you know, they, they, that's play-based and early years foundation stage. And within 12 months, they're in year one, sat at a desk with a pencil and a piece of paper, and they're expected to be able to do a phonics check at the end of that year. Yeah. When actually they may have had no rhyme, they've had no singing, they've had none of, none of the pre-phonics skills. They've just been thrown in to... And as you said earlier, there's that phonological versus phonics, which is very different. And if we're not teaching some of that really pre-stuff because they're not getting it home, then we're we're failing those youngsters much further along the line. And that thing, it could be just a delay. And that child who came in at 18 months, they could have caught up a lot. Absolutely. But that catching up should have continued in year yeah, one. Absolutely. And and you know, there are some schools that stay doing early years foundation stay into year one. You know, they sort of think. You know, that's what we need. And, I, you know, there are some schools now that are having to set up what they're calling alternative provision, but internally. So, you know, they've got a, a nurture group or, a you know, the bridge or, you know, they yeah. call it all sorts of different things. But you've got a small group of youngsters that can span the age range. They don't not often, but who are just not accessing education, the curriculum within the classroom. And and most of them have, have got SEMH because they just, their anxiety uh, and their stress levels are so high just because they can't, they can't keep up. They can't actually manage within that mainstream classroom. But, and again, you know, 10, well, five years ago, did we ever talk about children with mental health issues? Don't think so. We've now got, you know, three in every classroom. So the, the statistics tell us, but. Have we have we trained teachers to recognise? Have we have we got strategies in place? Twenty first century children, twentieth century education system. So this is uh, quite interesting because we are just starting development of an SEMH framework, yeah. and it is as I talk with Alex, who's our head of education, about it. Is when we think of communication interaction, that is a lot of teachers have experience of that because you go through developmentally speech language therapies. It's it's not new. They've got some experience of it. When you get into the world of SEMH, mm. that's brand new. That's a brand new area. So, yes, any child within the HCP will have an SEMH target, but does the teacher fully understand how to support, how to develop? There's a whole world around yeah. that. You have mental health first aiders, but a lot of that is more events-based and maybe a bit of that, and there's a little bit. This is much bigger, yeah. and there's a big journey schools need yeah. to go on to improve their knowledge and what it means. And also the podcast I did with Wendy Lee um, – Something like 75, 80%, this is a research, 75, 80% of people with SEMH issues also had an underlying communication interaction yeah. issue. So it's all interlinked. Absolutely. And that's the issue really is that people, we're, I think we're still trying to fit some of our children into little boxes. Yeah. So, you know, they've got a speech, a, a, a speech problem, so they must be communication interaction. But actually they might also have some cognition and learning. Or they might also have a, a, a hearing impairment, so they've got a sensory need. So they don't fit into those little boxes anymore. They're complex. So, you know, again, how do we find out what that primary need is? And, and I genuinely believe that social, emotional and mental health has got to come first. Because a child that is, is in school who's got trauma or anxiety or stress, you can throw every intervention, you can throw as much language development at them. If they are not in the right place to learn, it won't work. So, so we have to deal with that first. There's a new engagement model. Yes. Segway slightly, but it makes sense. So that looks at 
ways of assessing engagement. In reality, that's linked to mental health. Yeah. Because the more engaged a child is, the more if they're not engaged, you've got to find out why. Yeah. And that's going to hit the SEMH, communication yeah. interaction. It's good. You've got to look into that. Yeah. Or you might be doing a really ill-aimed lesson. Yeah. And, and I think that's the other thing, again, you know, supporting SEM stu- students in schools is, and I don't think teachers do this enough, uh, and yeah, I was probably as guilty as, as anybody else, but sometimes it is the teacher's fault. Sometimes there are things that you do as a teacher that just don't make sense to some children and young people. So, yeah, we can't, we don't blame the child. We don't blame the textbook. We don't, you know, sometimes it might just be how you approach that lesson. You know, whether it was using technology, whether it was using pen and paper, whatever, it may just not have been the right approach for that youngster. And I think sometimes we have to just take a step back and reflect and think, what did I do wrong? What was it that I did that caused that youngster not to get that piece of knowledge today? And I think sometimes that comes back to your confidence as a teacher and all that, because you have such a wide range of areas you've got to be an expert in. Absolutely, in primary school especially. And the ones you're weakest in will show up. Yeah. So if I had to teach you binary, Lorraine. Yeah, I'd be lost. No, you wouldn't. Oh, okay. Do you know how my mum explains binary? No, go on. Do you remember your old weights? Yeah. We had an ounce, two oh, ounce, yeah, two ounce, four yeah. ounce, eight ounce. Yeah. That's binary. You already right, know binary. Okay. okay. But if you do it in a practical way with weights, yeah. well, how, how do you make nine? That's eight and a one. Yeah. Well, that's, and it is, it's, it's looking at a topic which could be really boring and yeah. finding that way. And that is what, Whatever the curriculum you do, that's the teacher's job. Is yeah. That's the outcome. How do I make it engaging um, for my children? Yeah. And one of the things I do when you have off-the-shelf lesson plans, mm-hmm. you've still got to take that and adapt it to your children. Absolutely. You can never just teach that. No. You've always got to sit there. Even if it worked for your class last yeah. year, it might not work for no. this class. And and it might work on a Tuesday, but it might not work on a Wednesday. I mean, yeah, it's 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 all those things. And you know, that child may have been totally engaged yesterday, but something happened at home last night, and they've come in today, and they're just not with us. And and you know, you've got to you've got to think. Well, what do I need to do to get that youngster back? Yeah. And and it might not be something you can do immediately because you know their their mind is somewhere else. We often talk about differentiation, and I'm not sure that's the right word anymore. I think that we you know we've overused it, and I I actually think we should be thinking about adjustments and adaptations because they're the things that come up in terms of you know, reasonable adjustments through the Equality Act and adaptations using technology. So I think that we we probably need to move away from differentiation and think about adjustments and adaptations, which could be about how I actually teach. It could be about what I used to teach. It could be about any manipulatives that that youngster might need, because as you say, they need the practical, they need the concrete, they need the abstract, whatever it is. And that means we have to know our learners. And one of the things that I was was going to say earlier, I forgot, when and this is primary schools now, one of the things that I think is really, really important that we have to do, even before the children come into school, so you know, most schools do home visits for nursery or for reception, is find out as much as possible about that child before they even enter school. Yeah. And that's things like, you know, any birth history. Were they born prematurely? Was there any trauma at birth? Did they have any illness at birth? Was mum okay at birth? Yeah. So we can build a picture of those first five years and, and what's happened. So uh, if, if you can, you know, the parents split up when the child was two. or and, and I actually think that that's easier to gather at that point than it is 
a secondary school to gather it a transition. Yeah. I think when that child's younger and just coming into school, especially if you, you do a home visit, but that information will really set the scene for when you start to think, oh, there's something not quite right here and we really need to be looking at the, the you know, you've got all of that basic information, which I think is is so important. Especially when you think of you could have a child who's summer-born, yeah. but was prone severely premature. Absolutely. Who would be in the totally different year group if they'd have gone to full term. So that makes you think of actually they were born developmentally there yeah. behind. It's less, at that age, that's a huge, yeah. huge impact. And, and they make, you know, there are lots of children that that fits into and they go through being you know, neurotypical and, you know, sale. But there will always be those that don't. And, you know, there's lots of evidence around, you know, children who are born extremely prematurely will have a disability. There's, there's, you know, that that is, we know that. And, you know, if you're born at 23, 24 weeks, five, ten years ago, you would not have survived. But those babies are surviving now. So that means three, four months in an incubator. So attachment, language development, you know, all of those things, which may not actually become evident until that child is three, four, five, when you actually start to see, yeah, yeah there, there is a lack of language or there are some huge attachment issues. If we've got that knowledge, you know, it may not be the case, but it might. Yeah. And it, it just gives us that bigger picture of that young person. So just coming back to the topic about supporting children um, in mainstream, we talked about the one-page profile. Yeah, one-page profile. And that's, I think they work generally really well in primary because you've got that one teacher with them and the Senko overviews. Yeah. I think as long as they review them, it's just that ongoing document. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I think in primary, that's easy. Yeah. Because the teacher's responsible for it. And, you know, in secondary, it's, it's less easy because there's probably 15 teachers. But as I said, I, I saw, the one that I saw where teachers annotate was in a, a very large secondary school. And there, there was there was a, it wasn't a staff room, I can't remember what room, but there was a room where they were on the wall where pupils couldn't go, just staff. But teachers just annotated. So if, if a child had, had, something had happened and they'd had a conversation with the child and said what would have helped or what, they then just wrote it up in red pen so that, they knew it was new, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So it distinguished between what was originally on there. And and I thought that worked really well. And there was an expectation that staff would go and look at these, you know, and 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 would act upon them. I, if I remember right, I think so, if you put something on there, you then emailed all the staff to say, I've updated so-and-so's profile, please go and look or something like that. So there was a communication system that worked. So that sounds um, like something which is led from the top, supported yeah, abso- and promoted. Yeah. And, and, you know, the young people knew that their voice would be heard. So if something had kicked off or gone wrong, then there, there would be this conversation and hopefully it wouldn't happen again because somebody would make an adjustment to what, what was happening, you know. So, and as a primary teacher, you do get to know your children much better. And I, and I, I agree with your comment you made a bit flippantly earlier, but you know, sometimes our primary schools don't prepare our children for secondary. And I, I think that that is the case sometimes because I think that, you know, we've still got a very nurturing environment in right up to year six. And then it's such a big shock when they move to year seven. And, you know, there's a whole podcast there around transition, isn't there, which, you know, would bring all those things up. And I think that there's got to be some some overlap between six and seven now you know there's there's it's both it's 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 got to happen from primary but it's got to happen from secondary as well so i you know i think that there's this but it's passing on it's that, that information is 
part of that is about yeah. passing that on and, you know, knowing exactly that child won't change in those six weeks no. or not significantly. So what worked in year six will work in year seven. Maybe. Not always. No. Maybe. But I would just like to clarify, I only meant not preparing in the world concept of digital, just to clarify. Oh, okay, right. Okay, well, I'll take it <laughs> further than that. But <laughs> but I think, I, yeah, I think secondary, you might have 15 teachers. If yeah. you've got part-time, then it could go up even higher. And I do think some secondary schools do struggle with that sharing of information. Yeah. I think um, they really need to make SEN a bigger priority. So every teacher is thinking of it. Yeah. Um, and having these one-page profiles, not just on a shared drive, but somewhere raising it with teachers. So actually here are your five children you're teaching that have, have a uh, one-page profile or an ILP or an IEP, putting the photos on. So actually it, it starts going, ah, oh, that makes more sense yeah. now. And in reality, teachers should be looking at those regularly i'm gonna say just say regularly rather than weekly or so on but it should be a regular thing yeah. so you're you, you you know the child you're not going to have a huge amount of connection no. with them but you need to be able to know what they yeah. need and make those reasonable yeah. adjustments which means you've got to do it in your planning yeah not just when they walk in and go oh yeah it needs to be done before then Absolutely. and i think um it's hard for senkos but they need to support their leaders yeah. and they need to be able to share that information and people need to look at it and they also need to feed back, yeah. which I think is also yeah. really important. Absolutely. And I, I, it, it does start at the top. I, I mean, as I think I said earlier, you know, Senkos have got a really strategic role in all of that. They're not always on the leadership team. And it, it makes their life a lot easier if things are coming from the top. But it also makes teachers and the young people themselves, you know, a lot easier as well. Um, the one thing we haven't talked about in terms of supporting SEM, which I'll just say now because it's really important, is involving parents. Because what the code of practice says is that as soon as you have identified a child or a young person as having SEN, so they are on your SEN register, you must involve parents. And that what it says, the law says that you must have a pupil progress meeting with parents and the pupil three times a year. And again, I, I'm not sure that happens in a lot of schools or in some schools. Some people say, oh, can you do it by email? And, and I actually think they should be face-to-face -face meetings. Maybe not at the moment, but um, <laughs> when, when we can. And, you know, that is for the school to be able to share with parents what they've done, you know, share with parents the progress that youngster's making and also give the pupils a chance to sort of say what's worked and what hasn't worked. And it also gives the parents that chance to raise concern on what does this mean? Absolutely. And, and you know, well, this is, you know, we're finding at home or, and again, the difficulty is between primary and secondary. In primary school, that can be led by the teacher because obviously the teacher knows that pupil. In secondary school, which teacher? Because there's 15 of them. If there is a, a tutor or a year group head or somebody who knows that then that's the person yeah maybe the senko but it is it is more difficult in secondary schools because who actually does that particular piece of work but it's um, also i think secondary, it's half that continual conversation so as a primary school yeah. you can walk in and go we had a bad night yeah that absolutely it's gonna be a, yeah. could be a bit get, of a tough day yeah. yeah that that communication is far easier than easy at secondary school. In a secondary school, the child walks on their own. You've yeah. lost that. Yeah. Um, you might email the Senko, yeah. but somehow that information has to get to those teachers who have your child the first three lessons. Yeah, absolutely. And that generally Doesn't isn't going to happen. happen. No. And that's it's it's one yeah. of the things that it should happen. 
Yeah. But then there's a whole lot of other happen, stuff. I mean, it does happen. You know, some schools are really, really, you know, really good at it. And, you know, the Senko will come in and by nine o'clock, everybody that needs to know about a particular issue knows about it. You know, but there are others that that will not happen. I do find it interesting. So um, during my work, I email some teachers a lot because we're working on stuff with them. And generally, you can guarantee certain teachers you'll get a reply at the break time, the lunchtime, yeah. or after school. Guaranteed. Yeah. I literally I emailed her and I go, oh, she'll be replying in half an hour. And she does religiously. Yeah. Other teachers, they, they're they not email isn't that. It's a once a week. Yeah, it's, it's not. And again, that goes back to their use of technology themselves. Yeah. You know, and, I, and again, I think we've still got the 20th century, 21st century issue. Some people don't use, I mean, you know, lots of teachers are not on social media. Yes. Um, and I understand that, you know, around Instagram and Facebook, but every teacher should be on Twitter because for me, it is the best CPD that you can get for now. Have you heard of Glow? Do you know what Glow no, is? No, I don't know Glow. Glow is not in England, it's in Scotland. Right. But basically every teacher in a, in a government maintained school is on a system called glow which right. is basically a closed facebook oh right okay so every teacher in the whole yeah. of scotland is on this one system so they can just i need help with this where can i go for this it yeah. is amazing right. and that's a really when, when i see it working i hear what's going yeah. conversations going on it's a really makes so much sense and that's what social media gives you it gives you a load of people yeah. i can go and ask i need help with this in my experience, and Twitter's like world. that if you've, twist, you know, you're in with the right people type of thing, but yes. you've got to know who Once to you've follow. learned how to use but once Twitter. You've got, I, I just find it amazing. I mean, you know, I learned so much from it. I do find myself following Facebook and Twitter. I just look and see what's being discussed, yeah, yeah. what's being shared, what problems are people yeah. facing. And people put links so you can just go straight to the link. You haven't got to go searching the DFE website or whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, if, if there's there's one resource that I would say to people, you know, sign up to Twitter and then just ask, yeah, you know, just put a general comment: who should I follow? Who's into SEN? And that you'll get lots of answers. I think going back to your 20th, 20th century, um, I think a lot of people think important meeting, well, important information will come out in meetings. Yes. Yeah. We haven't got time no. for meetings. Yeah. <laughs> um, and one of the things in the middle of the coronavirus is uh, you see a thing going. We'll really now find out what can be done via email instead yeah. of a meeting. Nearly everything can be done via email. Yeah. Meetings are good for discussions yeah. and you get a consensus and yeah. all that stuff. But actually, when you're sharing information, email is great because the person who's sharing it can share it when they need to. Yeah. The person collecting it can collect it when they, they need, need to. to yeah. It doesn't have to be at the same yeah. time. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I, I, you know, I think well, let, I'll end by saying... What I said at the beginning, yeah, we we have got a 20th century education system with a 20th century workforce because they have not, been, and I don't mean that derogatory, but that's because they haven't been trained to teach 21st century children, no. and especially 21st century children who have got complex needs. Um, and there's more and more of those in our mainstream schools and children who would have been in special schools five years ago. But our special schools have got more very, very complex children who wouldn't have survived. But we we haven't been trained to see that that shift. So I'm going to ask you to end on another one you always okay. say. One of them, I think it's, it's every child matters is one of them. But another one I think you use is like um, basically every child is every teacher's responsibility. Yeah, so every teacher is a teacher of every pupil, no matter where they are in who, and who's teaching them at any one time. It's still the teacher's responsibility to make sure that that child is getting a really good education and he's making progress.
And it's important because when, when, although that child might have SEN, you go, well, that's the Senko's role, that's the Senko's role, that's the Senko's role, that's or the Senko's TA. role. Or TA. When it comes to parents' evening, yeah. you're going to be the one sitting there. Absolutely. Or to be fair, when Ofsted come in, you will be the one that has, has to say to an inspector, I've differentiated or I've made adjustments here because of those children in my classroom. It's turning around and saying, well, they go out to the TA, so I don't have anything to do with it is not the right answer. <laughs> and that's something that's got to come from the leaders when you're thinking about workload and things like that. Yeah. You've got to think about actually teachers have this on. We've got to make sure yeah. we're making sure they're doing it right. They're not leaving it to the same co. Everyone is being supported yeah, for all people. Absolutely. And if they don't, haven't had the training, then schools need to offer professional development to support them. Definitely. So thank you for today, Lorraine. That's all right. Thank you very much. I always love discussing things with you. <laughs> I can throw anything at you. Yeah. It always. Uh... I try. <laughs> So we're putting things we've mentioned in our show notes. I'm not sure what we've really mentioned. Yeah, I've, well. I've, I've, I've got some stuff Excellent. that um, I'll send you. Lorraine has a big piece of paper. Yeah. I'll put that in. <laughs> I'll also be sharing Lorraine's contact details because uh, Lorraine does run her own consultancy pro company. What, what does your consultancy company do? Well, I oh, – what don't I do? Um, so I do uh, a lot of training. I uh, work with Senkos, so I do SEND reviews. I've worked with local authorities where they've wanted some help. I am a mental health first aid instructor, so I do mental health first aid. And literally anything that's to do with SEN, I'll give it a go. <laughs> so <laughs> if, there's, if there's a show to a special needs, Lorraine will be talking. <laughs> so um, you'll be able to find the show notes on our website, so www.thesencast.com. If you go to episodes, you'll be able to find the, this podcast. Uh, so thank you for listening to the show. Uh, if you haven't subscribed already, you can subscribe by going to our website, www.thesencast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter to keep up to date with the latest news. Alternatively, you can follow us on Twitter, at The Sencast, on Facebook, The Sencast, on Instagram, The Sencast, or search on LinkedIn for Sencast. And if you want to get in touch, let us know your thoughts, suggest topics or anything else, please just send an email to hello at thesencast.com. And if you've enjoyed the Sencast and want to hear more from Lorraine, why not look into the virtual Send conference? This is a conference that, like the Sencast, we run at B Squared, and it covers everything to do with SEND. And we realised that um, sort of um, the physical conferences where we all travel to somewhere and we all take time out of school and business and life and it costs a lot to do. It doesn't hugely work for us and doesn't really hugely work for a lot of people because of time. So what we did is we created a conference which runs over the internet. So you can access it on the day. So we're running one on March the 27th and we run one in November. And we've we set it up like a physical conference. So we have keynotes in the morning, we have streams in the afternoon, but we record every session. So what's great about that is if you miss the day or if something comes up, you're not available, you get the videos and you can watch them whenever you want. You can also use them in staff training sessions, point teachers in the right direction. So I think we've got uh, sessions on ODD coming up. So if you've got a year three teacher, has a child with ODD, there's a session that they can go and watch in their own time to get support for that child. Um, so to us, it makes a lot of sense. And because we don't have to hire out a hotel, we don't have to hire out an army of people and various other things, it makes it a lot more affordable for us, which means it's a lot more affordable for you. So the cost for each conference is £60 per school, not per person. And as a listener to the Sendcast, we're offering you a 10% discount by just using the code Sendcast10. So... Thank you for listening to the show. We'll be back with another episode shortly. So thank you and goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thank you very much. Bye.